Welcome to the ATX Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Riley. The ATX Podcast is an interview show with noteworthy Austinites about their lives, their work, and their city. In this episode, I interview Ellen Jefferson, Executive Director of Austin Pets Alive. During our conversation, Ellen talks about the genesis of Austin Pets Alive, its assistance in making Austin America's largest no-kill city, and her hopes for the future of the organization. Ellen, thank you for uh, joining the show. Uh, it's good to have you here and, uh, and welcome on. Thanks so much. I'm glad to be here. Same here. Um, so I wanted to start just by, uh, before we kind of dive into Austin Pets Alive specifically, just to talk about your specific background and what led you to uh, to the APA. And I know you're a veterinarian by by training. Um, what is that general genesis from uh, you know standard path of being a veterinarian to to you know coming to Austin and and kickstarting Austin Pets Alive? Well, that's a good question. Um, it I never intended to be a shelter veterinarian or to work in shelters. Mm-hmm. As um, going into vet school, I I knew that I wanted to make an impact on animals, mm-hmm. and I wanted to to help the neediest animals. But I really thought that the only way I could do that was by being a veterinarian in private practice. So that was my entire um, schooling. And then when I graduated working in private practice and moved here a year after I graduated and was working in an emergency room. And I had a ton of time on my hands because I only had to work three nights a week because the hours are so long. And um, my sister was like, well, why don't you go volunteer at the shelter? Because you love the shelter. And so I went down to our our city shelter, which is now where Austin Pets Alive is, and started volunteering and trying to help them with things. And at that time in Austin, Austin had a 15% save rate. Yeah. So um, the animals that only 15% of the animals were leaving alive, and it really didn't have anything to do with their medical status or their yeah. broken legs or anything. So what I was trying to bring to the table to offer to help them get out alive really wasn't the core problem. Yeah. And so I didn't feel like I was really making a big, um, the best use of my time. And um, so that led me to really, because the they were taking in 25,000 animals and only getting about 15% out yeah. alive. So that was a huge number every day that were being killed. And when you see it in person, it is much different than reading about it. And so I felt like I had to do something and I didn't think I could affect anything in the shelter. So I started a spay and neuter clinic to try to get the public to get more of their animals fixed. So less, fewer would be born right. and then fewer would end up in the shelter and more, more could make it out alive because right. it'd be a smaller number total coming in. And I did that for about nine years and it, and I do believe that it helps a lot of animals and a lot of people. And the shelter too, um, but it wasn't the kind of impact I was expecting. I was expecting after nine years that we would be a no-kill city because yeah. of all that work that yeah. we were putting into the community. And um, so in about 2007, 2008, there was a lot of community talk about how do we save more animal lives? And that's when it kind of dawned on me that somebody just has to start saving them. And so Austin Pets Alive was an organization that was here. They were doing advocacy work. And they need, they wanted a new volunteer director, um, volunteer executive director. So I said, Hey, I'll, I don't mind doing that. Why don't we just see if we can maybe make an impact? Right. And, um, and that started the whole thing. <laughs> and the, the, the prior to you joining the Osmos Live, the, 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 the spade initiative that you were involved, was mm-hmm. that a, a Mansa pet? Yes. Was that the, okay. That mm-hmm. was yep. the, that was the, 
program you were associated with at that time. Yeah, I founded Emancipet and now they're doing great work and they're continuing to help the community in huge ways. And um, so that's great. It's in great hands. Yeah. The the 15% kill rate uh, that you mentioned earlier, is that typical of standard American cities? Where, where does that rank in terms of what is generally expected in, in U.S. cities now? Well, there is a push to get every city to 90% save rate or 90% leaving alive. Mm-hmm. And um, that is far from the reality, unfortunately. 15% is pretty bad yeah. nowadays. Um, but we were just we just had a, a meeting of our American Pets Alive group that helps other communities try to achieve what Austin's achieved. Yeah. And we were talking about a community in Texas that has 2% save rate for cats. So there's a lot of places in yeah. Texas that are not doing well. You mentioned the huge difference between reading about that statistic and actually being there, I assume, and seeing it or being a component of that of that process. Um, If you're comfortable talking about that, what what was that experience like for you to actually, you know, see the statistics in action or witness um, what I think to any, you know, most Americans would seem to be just a terribly sad uh, act consistently day in and day out. And, you know, I wasn't there every day. Yeah. So I had snapshots whenever I was able to volunteer and I still had my job. So um, I what I would see was more as a volunteer vet, not not actually part of the process of euthanasia. I see. So what the things that stick out in my memory are uh, me helping to try to do spays and neuters and having the animals come in for spay neuter. And we had a table we were doing them all on as kind of an assembly line yeah. process. And then. This shelter was being renovated at the time, which is hard to believe if you look at it now, but it was being renovated and it um, on the table next to me is where they were doing the euthanasias because the euthanasia room was closed because of the renovation. So while I'm doing all these surgeries and trying to make a positive impact, the next table to me is euthanizing faster than I can even spay an animal. Yeah. So that was kind of mind boggling. And um And, you know, it was puppies, it was mothers of puppies, it was animals that would never die in this city nowadays. And um, it it was sort of horrifying. I bet. Is that done painlessly? I mean, you know, I know that still happens periodically, even in Austin, I I understand. But how does that process work for people who are just not familiar with the the reality and the the gory details of what what happens? Well, um, it is... So this is sort of one of the great fallacies and very controversial subjects um, in the animal sheltering world is that euthanasia, it sounds like a humane, painless death, but it's often not for the animals that are experiencing it. Um, A lot of the animals that are coming in, you have to you have to be really good at finding a vein to get the drugs in. And most shelters don't place catheters Um, like if you think about prisons and and. the the execution that is uh, happens now it's all through catheter everything's tested a million times before they do the actual drug that doesn't happen in animals it's just a stick and then try to get the drug into them and the drug is very caustic and so it causes a lot of um tissue death where wherever it doesn't go in the vein and um a lot of the animals are in a very fearful state because they you know, they don't know what's going on, but they know something's happening. And, um, sometimes it's feral cats that have, that are are never going to behave well enough for you to be able to hit a vein. So it's not, it's not a, um, it it is not a kind death for most animals. Yeah. Yeah. Um, incredible. Um, you know, 
painting the picture from that time to now, uh, I guess before I move on to that, the, the, those, those animals that end up in the, in shelters generally that historically were euthanized, is there a way to know what their Genesis story is, how they generally get to that place to begin with and what, what their animal life stories are generally? The short answer is no, but the longer answer is we really want to know that, especially for the ones that don't have an easy outcome. Um, So we have a lot of uh, probably the majority of the animals that come into the shelter nowadays can easily be adopted back into the community. So they have a very fast um, uh, stay at the shelter. The animals that come in that are much harder to move into the community as adoptees, those we want to know more. Is there something in the community that's happening that's creating um, behavior problems or medical problems that we could maybe start addressing at the front end? Sure. And it's not um, it's not necessarily because there's too many of them, because many of them are coming into the city shelter a year old, seven years old. Mm-hmm. So they've been in somebody's home. They were wanted at some point, yep. but then something's happened to either break the bond or um, where they've caused a big enough problem that they are no longer welcome there. Yeah. And um, there has got to be some commonality about that. It's just we have no intel. There's This this industry has almost zero research hmm. around things like that that, yep. are, that it could help move the needle. And these are animals generally or almost exclusively that are brought in by known individuals or they are they dropped off at the door? How, how do the animals come in and... You know, I don't know the current statistic at Austin Animal Center. We we pull from other shelters, yeah. so we're we're sort of the second shelter most yeah. of these animals are in. the The Austin Animal Center is the the shelter where we're trying to make the impact because they're the um, safety net for the community, mm-hmm. and that's where the live release is calculated at, and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, the animals that come in, it used to be about fifty fifty over the counter and in the field. And then, um, there's another way to look at them, whether they're stray animals or owner surrender. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of, they're kind of mixed between the method and the reason that they're brought in. Um, and that's another place that we need to do more research. on. I gotcha. Um, and given the success of the, of Austin's rates right now, I'd be curious to just get the most up-to-date information on how Austin is doing generally as a city. I I know it's been I don't know if it's given awards, but it's consistently named, I believe, the the largest American city for being a no-kill mm-hmm. area or, or place of residence. Uh, is that still the case? And what do you attribute that to? Austin is doing very well compared yeah. to the rest of the country. And it's it has been going on for about eight years. We're about to celebrate the eighth anniversary of no-kill in mm-hmm. Austin. The the reason that I'm not happy about that is that other communities should have caught up with us by now. Yeah. It's pretty sad to think that we're still holding this moniker, but it's good for Austin. And um, Austin, the the when we started the no kill movement in Austin in 2007, 2008, mm. the Animal Advisory Commission was charged by council to create a goal um, for the city to, uh, to try to reach. And that would become this, what they're now calling the 90% resolution. And that was just a guess. Nobody really knew where the, the, you know, we start saving all these lives. You don't really know how many are not savable. Mm. Now Austin is at about 98%. And, um, there are maybe, five cities in America that reach over 95%, 94%. Mm. So it's, it is heads and shoulders above 
the rest of the world. (laughs) (laughs) Were were there city ordinances that were put in place that also allowed that to facilitate itself and become so successful? Why, why is it that this city beyond the other, you know, big American cities has been able to be so, so successful in that area? I think that it is a combination of advocates. It's a combination of partnerships between Austin Animal Center and Austin Pets Alive to save the, to get the animals out through a live um, path. And, um, I think that, that there were, there were other uh, organizations that were really focused on the politics of this and they, they were so smart. It was, you know, I didn't really recognize the value of that back then, but what they have done is create this council that actually cares about this issue. They're knowledgeable about this issue. They are, they're proud of it. They want this to continue. And that really kind of changes the whole conversation about what's happening on the ground, whether it's at the city shelter among staff or even in nonprofits, like there's a certain bar that everybody expects Austin to be at, which is fantastic. And that, that was 90% council member Poole put forward a resolution that earlier this year and changed it to 95%. So now Austin's minimum bar is 95%, which is fascinating. I mentioned this to you before we started recording that I moved here about a year and a half ago. And, um, it's undeniable that one of the first noticeable things about Austin is, how happy people are with their dogs and how many dogs there are just simply everywhere. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they seem to be just a part of the community. Is that board or committee that you were just mentioning, did they have a role in creating a community or a business community that was more amenable to having pets outdoors within uh, the premises of, of small business in Austin? Are there like specific uh, alterations that were made to the city code or to city businesses that have really helped in in the no-kill awards that Austin has received? You know, I, I don't know the answer to that fully. Yeah. There, there are some animal codes, but I don't think that they discuss that in particular. Mm-hmm. I think when I moved here 20 years ago, I w- that's one of the reasons I moved here is everybody was outside with their dog. It seemed like a huge animal friendly town. Mm-hmm. And then I found out what's happening in the shelter. So it's interesting how the community didn't reflect what was actually yeah. occurring in the shelter. But I think when the, the light was shined on the, what was happening, the community really wanted that to change. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that I don't think it's remarkable. I think most cities, the community citizens don't want their animals to just be rounded up and exterminated for lack of better words. But I, I think Austin in particular maybe was quicker to jump on it because they, it is such an animal friendly town. Yeah. And so it was pretty easy for, for people to become more excited about, you know, as we're talking about saving more animals and trying to get Austin to be no kill businesses were coming on board because I mean, everybody want, I I think that people just want that to happen naturally. Yeah. I I think I read an article where you were mentioning that, uh, you were hoping that, that Houston would take the mantle, uh, in terms of being the biggest city in the, in the country with a no kill rate. I'm, I'm not exactly sure how they're doing right now, but I would imagine your team must think a lot about how to replicate the model everywhere or as many places, as many cities as possible. Um, how do you go about thinking about that and what sort of key insights do you think you've gleaned in terms of how to make that a potential reality? We're, we're working on that a lot. We yeah. have a program um, called American Pets Alive that we're, that is the sole focus is trying to figure out how to help other communities do it. And um, it is not easy. We've yeah. been trying a lot of different methods. We've been trying to create um, Pets Alive groups in different cities. We've been trying to um, just share knowledge. We've tried to go in and mentor hands-on. Um, 
and it it just takes a lot of of not hand holding but sort of one on one contact i think for people to finally understand how it's really murky and part of that is because every shelter in america is built with the same um kind of the same SOPs. Yeah. And so it's this institutionalized way of thinking that is is really entrenched and really old. And trying to break that is really difficult. Um, something we talk internally about is that the foundation of, of animal sheltering is really fractured. Mm. And it is not something that you can actually go in and keep adding layers to to make it better and better. It's yeah. You kind of have to fix the whole thing. Yeah. And I'm not really sure how to do that because every shelter ultimately is made to round up and kill animals. And so getting them to not do that is you have to get down to every fine detail that happens mm. in a shelter to try to eradicate that thinking. Hmm. And is it true that Austin Pets Alive is, it, it seems like the majority of the adoptions are, are dogs, but it, how large is the, the universe of, of potential adoption? Is it solely for, for dogs in, in the organization or is it, is it expanding or potentially expanding to others <laughs> so at some point? The cat people on our team would be very happy you said that because they believe that all the time, but we actually adopt out way more cats than we do dogs. Is that right? Yeah. Hmm. So it's about 60% cats and 40% dogs. Okay. And, um, they're just quieter (laughs) (laughs) for, for anybody listening to this, who lives in town and is, you know, has always wanted a dog or is interested in getting a dog at some point, I I may be one of them or a cat. (laughs) (laughs) Um, what is the process generally by which, uh, the people who do end up making those adoptions become associated with your organization here? And then at some point walk out with a a new best friend. (laughs) Well, so there's a there's a national movement which we definitely embrace here, both at Austin Pets Alive and Austin Animal Center, is open adoptions. It's a it's the idea that um, the way shelters have always treated people because they're used to seeing people drop off animals um, hand over fist, and so people the public becomes the enemy hmm. for a lot of shelters, and um, they're equating people dropping off pets with every single person in the community, and so there's a it's a it's, that's another place where there's a shift in the thinking and this open adoptions concept is that there's no necessarily, um, like a, uh, uh, investigation done on the person to make sure they're appropriate. It's more of a conversation. Mm. And so you're talking about what you would like in a pet. And then our people are saying, okay, well, we think we have this one that might be a good fit, or this one's not really a good fit because of X, Y, and Z, or, you know, so it's a conversation that ultimately ends in either adopting or not adopting, but it's a welcoming yeah. environment. And, and the adoption process itself, let's say an, an individual in our, in our town, you know, identifies a, a puppy or a dog or, or a cat that they're interested in, in adopting. Uh, how long does that process generally take? And what is the you know, rough general price tag on, on actually making that happen? <laughs> um, it's, so it can take a while because um, it, on a busy Saturday, there might be 200 people here. But uh, 200 people looking at potential adoptions. Mm-hmm. That's incredible. And so, yeah, there's a huge community of people who yeah. love pets and, and um, want to adopt. And so keeping up with that sometimes takes a little bit longer than we'd like. And it also depends on the type of pet you're interested in. If it's an animal that has a medical condition, that you also need to go and talk to our vet team and make sure you fully understand what the pet has and what you'll need to do to manage it, then that's going to take longer than just a simple adoption. But yeah. a simple adoption, less than an hour. And really? Yeah, uh, for the processing. So yeah. we recommend that everybody spend uh, a, a good amount of time with the pet before they make the choice to adopt. Yeah. Uh, obviously, you know. That's for the adopter's sake as much as the pet. Yeah. Is the price tag 
essentially free or is it it's all over the place yeah Yeah. it's probably anywhere between um i was just looking at the city's animal code today and our fee structure today and it's listed between zero and two hundred dollars at the director's discretion and that kind of is the same as ours it depends on um it depends on if we're doing an adoption special, like a big adoption weekend, right. and then we're maybe we're doing a free event, or our normal pricing is seventy five dollars for a cat and one hundred and twenty five for a dog. Okay, but that it just depends. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know. I was reading another statistic about the organization that was articulating just the amount of raw volunteer hours that are allocated to the organization for free, mm-hmm. and it was some incredible number. Um, Talk to me a little bit about that. How did how did this town get a zeitgeist for volunteerism for a program like this? And do you have any idea, like roughly, how many volunteers are are affiliated at any given time with with Austin Pets Alive? I do, and I don't know the hours right off the top of my head, but I do know that we have about eighteen hundred volunteers that are active, meaning that they're logging hours in the last three months. Okay. Um, and so, we generally have maybe three hundred a month signing up. So there's a huge influx of people. Not everybody stays. There's an attrition rate that's sort of expected, but, um, but it is, I don't know. It's a fun thing to do. It's a great thing to do. You know, it's kind of like me 20 years ago going and volunteering because I didn't know anybody. And, um, it was a great place to sort of, uh, help make your impact on the world. You were mentioning that on, on any given weekend, there could be 200 people here looking to potentially adopt. Do you ever have a problem uh, supplying the demand or, or is that really never, never something that's a, a, an actual problem? No, you know, it's funny that you asked that because this is another area where the industry has no data about yeah. what the actual demand of a community is. And, um, and so we tend as an industry to blame slow adoptions on the community's lack of demand, hmm. but often it's because our process is onerous or the animals we're adopting out might have needs that the, you know, aren't easy to satisfy. Yeah. And so, um, what we're finding is that we have way more potential adopters than we have animals mm. and we need to figure out, we'd like to do a citywide um, almost census to see if we can really put a number on what's the demand versus the mm. supply that would help every community. Yeah. In terms of the, the day-to-day you know, financial running of an organization like this, is there, uh, again, if, if somebody in town is listening to this and they're interested in you know, helping in some way and it's not necessarily as a volunteer, but they're interested, you know, in a financial contribution. Um, what are the ways in which the organization is kind of, uh, reaching out to the community for those sort of, uh, those sort of donations and where, where does the money generally come from? How, How are you able to keep this whole thing running? Well, that's another good question. We um, we don't have a government contract okay. um, for funds. We have a government contract to be on this facility because it's city property, and and that's in exchange for helping them like we we have been. Mm. Um, but we don't receive any government funding, and we so we have a, a small amount. I, I bet it's about fifteen percent of our budget is covered through fees, adoption fees, yep. and. Um, services like our thrift stores are trying to build up so that we can supply more funds, uh, income that we can rely on every month. And then the rest, the majority of the rest is individual donors. Hmm. And, um, it's the bulk of that is made up of donors that are in the 25 to a hundred dollar range. And that's huge for us. So we have, it kind of goes back to this grassroots movement and how we need everybody to pitch in and do a little, whether you're 
fostering one litter of kittens a year or donating a little bit or volunteering five hours a month, every little bit adds up to a huge amount that helps to sustain the whole operation. Yeah. And I, you just mentioned the fostering program and I have, I have a friend who, who's done a little bit of fostering, uh, through, through the APA. Um, talk to me about, a little bit about that. Is that, is that something that, you know, if, if you're not sure that a, a long-term pet is necessarily something that's in the near-term horizon for yourself, is, is that a potential option for X amount of time, maybe a month or two to come in here and, and foster is, is this sort of mm-hmm. like an open timeline in terms of how long people can adopt a, an animal? Um, so we don't, we don't typically do foster to adopt. So yeah. if somebody's interested in a specific pet, it, depending on what the needs of that pet are, if, it, yeah. if it's got a lot of hurdles to get over to be adopted, then of course we're going to work with that adopter who's yeah. interested. But if it's just a regular pet, then we want people to make a decision yeah. um, one way or the other, because we need to open that space up for another animal. And um, the foster program, typically people who are signing up to foster, they're either people who are in a short-term situation, like a college student or um, somebody who's working here for a year and can't get a pet. Um, Or it's somebody who we have people like myself who are addicted to fostering. It's just, there's a real high with being able to save their life and then get them into a home. And, um, and then there's other people who are trying to decide if they even want to be a pet owner at all. And so it's the whole gamut. And we, we love all of those types of fosters because it takes a huge number. We have the largest foster program in the country and, um, it it goes back to our community. People want to help and it's just letting them, letting them know that there's a need and then saying yes. Okay. I would imagine some of the animals, I I think you even mentioned this or alluded to this earlier that, that they may have some sort of behavioral issues or or they may not be home ready at at this point. Is there some sort of a a program or process that is implemented currently to curb that behavior? And if so, how how does that, how does that work? We have, so we have about, um, we have five major programs that we do here and we're not like a normal shelter. So we're not a shelter that takes in animals and our primary functions adoption, even though it looks like that from the outside, our primary function is to take the animals that have some obstacle to living at another shelter. And Mm. then we put them through the pipelines that we've created to save their lives. So that might be little bottle baby kittens or orphan kittens that come into the shelter. If they come into most shelters in Texas and the country, they don't have a live outcome because they're too little and they need, uh, they need bottle feeding. They're hard to save because they're so fragile. And, um, and so we have a bottle baby program where all those kittens go through. We have a program for really sick puppies. So puppies are generally euthanized if they come in and they have symptoms of parvovirus, even if they're, they don't have parvo, if they have symptoms of parvovirus, they're typically euthanized along with the rest of their litter. What is parvovirus? It's a, um, it's an intestinal virus that causes extreme bleeding into the intestinal tract and vomiting and diarrhea. Mm -hmm. And typically it kills 90% of of puppies that get it without treatment and we're able to save about 90% with treatment, but that is something that's never been done before in a shelter setting. Um, so that's, that's another group. And then we have, um, all the injured and ill animals come through our clinic. We have an emergency center, if you will, for shelter animals. And, um, and then kind of the same thing for ring for cats with ringworm, which is a, um, skin fungus, Mm. like athlete's foot. No big deal, but cats die for that all over the place. And then the last program is big dogs. Big dogs in general have an obstacle to get adopted, even if they're perfectly behaved because of their size. So there's there's landlord restrictions. There's um, people are a little nervous about bringing in a larger dog. 
they don't know anything about. And then if they have a behavior component on top of that, either a previous history of behavior or something that they have, they're exhibiting in the shelter, then that is even harder for them to get out alive. And so we, we now have a very robust behavior program and, um, we've, we're focused on giving them the enrichment they need while they're here so that they don't lose their minds. And then because we know it's going to take longer for them to get adopted. And then we also have behavior modification staff members that are working and, and a huge volunteer corps that are working on trying to solidify good behavior that helps them get adopted too. Gotcha. It sounds like the organization is just kicking ass right now. <laughs> um, you know, as you look into the future, how do you envision success looking like in three to five years? Is, is it sort of continuing the success that, that you're having right now? Is it growth? Is it figuring out the copycat for other cities? What, what does that look like to you? I think that it is a constant movement upwards. We, I don't know where the finish line is exactly, yeah. but I think that we are, we are trying to get a place where we have enough data that we can, we can help other communities not have to do everything that we've done to recreate the wheel. Yeah. So a lot of research to figure out what's working and what's not working here in Austin and then also program improvement. So we're trying to get our programs, um, like, like the big dog program. Yeah. We, we talked about enrichment and all the dogs get walked twice a day or they go to play group, but that's a very short period of their life in the kennel 24 hours. And so we need to figure out what, what is it to be a dog in a shelter and not, and have a good quality of life. Yeah. And what is, how do we, create that knowing that the shelter is not built for that. And part of that goes into in the next three to five years, we'll, we'll be starting a capital campaign and rebuilding this facility. And our thinking is that we can build something that really does meet those needs in a way that's never been built before. Yeah. You've probably seen thousands or tens of thousands of pets get adopted and have new lives. Um, is there a story or a story that you generally point to or reminisce about that, I don't know, illuminates or, or shed some light on the general goals or objective of, of the organization that, you know, really speaks to you individually. Yes. Um, I can, I, I can think of one that, um, there's a lot, but one in particular, when you ask that question comes to mind, we had a, this was right when we moved into this building. So maybe like seven years ago and we, we had a, um, a woman was dropping off donations. We take, uh, we, we have a lot of, um, help from the community with tangible donations too. So like donated medications or donated food. Uh, and this woman was dropping off her, her dog had just passed away from pancreatic insufficiency, which is a really expensive treatment, um, for owners to have to deal with, with their pet. She was dropping off the medications for that dog from that dog. And that was right when we showed up with a dog that we had pulled from the city shelter with pancreatic insufficiency. And they met in the parking lot and she adopted that dog right then and there and took her meds back. Yeah. Incredible. <laughs> I, know. <laughs> I know. And that's like, that's exactly it. It's um, letting the community be part of every, every aspect of this, helping animals you'll never meet, but then also being given access to dogs and cats that most shelters don't think the public should be burdened with. There's always somebody that is interested in an animal and for their unique needs. Mm. And, um, we shouldn't be making that decision. Mm. We should just be helping people find their soulmate. Mm -hmm. 
How about for people that you see come in here that really should not be adopting? You know, is there a profile or a background or a situation <laughs> that you know they come in, they speak to you or your team about wanting to adopt, and and you it really tell them it's it's now is really not the not the right time, or we we don't think this is is for the best. Right, that's very seldom, which is great. Okay, um, we we see. I think that there's a lot of fear and folklore about that happening in shelters. My guess is that the people who would do bad things with adopted pets won't come and, and give their ID to somebody. Yeah. Um, and so we, I don't think we see those in, at least in our setting, the, um, we do often get people who just don't know what they're getting themselves into. So yeah. they might want a really difficult case to adopt. And we're like, okay, here's all the things you need to do. And they're not listening. Then we will, we'll say, okay, you know, you need to come back on a different yeah. day or if somebody's intoxicated. I mean, there's, yeah. there's a lot of reasons why we would say <laughs> sure. no, but, um, we try to be very, um, make it very individualized and not necessarily like a blanket, um, process. Gotcha. Do you know roughly what percentage of the animal, like dogs and cats in Austin, you know, come from this organization? Is there any rough estimation as to what that number looks like? No, there's no data out there. We okay. know we've adopted 60,000 animals out over the last um, 10 years, but we don't know what that percentages of the community's pets. We okay. Back when we started, this is the thing that really convinced me to move to rescue from prevention was um, that the Veterinary Medical Association comes up with a statistic for every community where they're trying to say, this is how many pets are in your community if you want to open a veterinary practice. And there's one stat in particular that says that there there were 10 years ago, 75,000 homes every year with a pet under the age of a year. So that means that there are at least 75,000 acquisitions every year of new pets. That doesn't even include pets over a year. And we were killing in Austin back then 14,000. So 14,000, when you compare it to that 75,000 is it's just, it's kind of a ridiculously small number that you need to try to infiltrate into that 75,000. But we don't, we don't know really how many there are total. Okay. In terms of what would really you know, for your long-term vision for, for the organization, what, what is the area where the community could help the most? I mean, if you could wave a magic wand and have an allocation of of finances somehow, or an an increase in volunteerism, what, what to you, to your mind would be the, the, the best, you know, use of time and energy or, or, or money that could come from uh, the community in some way to help? Well, we, we need that every year. (laughs) So it's hard to say what the next big thing is. Um, every year we need to raise enough money to take care of the pets because it's, we, we're not, we're a new organization. We're only 10 years old. So we don't have this endowment. We don't have, um, reserves that are ridiculously high. We use the money that we receive on the animals and that happens every year. And Mm -hmm. then the same thing, we have 10,000 animals a year saved, but then we need 10,000 foster homes and 10,000 adopters. So it kind of just restarts every, every year needing a huge amount of um, help and same with volunteers. And so our biggest need that's outside of that annual need is going to be this capital campaign and trying to really rebuild this facility. It's falling down around us. It's terrible. (laughs) And um, it's better than um, death. That's why we are in here, but it's, (laughs) um, but it, it, it definitely needs to go. (laughs) <laughs> when, when you think about you know yourself 10 years ago, roughly when you started this, 
can you, could you have imagined that it would have been this successful? I know that's, that's somewhat of a leading question, but do you regard what has happened overall as a undeniable success in your mind? I think that it is, has been hugely successful. We're, there's always the little defeats that eat away at yeah. you, but um, I think that we've Austin is now the safest community in the country for dogs and cats, yeah. and um, it, it helps me sleep at night. That knowing must feel that. amazing. Yeah, it does. It, it you know the worry, the anxiety I feel about animals is it just isn't here in Austin. Yeah, um, there's anxiety about other things, but not necessarily they're going to a shelter and just being killed. So, um, that's hugely successful. I had no idea that it was going to be such a national prominence. Mm. Um, and so that's been sort of eye opening that, that people find this so difficult to do when we started, we, we really were trying to tackle that 14,000 animals that had died. And so we were trying to scale up really fast. Mm -hmm. We weren't starting as a a small rescue and then the next year voting to take in another 500 animals. We were shooting to try to get up to 14,000. Luckily we didn't have to because of various things that happened along the way. But, um, I think that helped to keep it in perspective from day one success was going to look like when look like 90% of those animals leaving alive. The staff that you have here, what I would imagine most of the work that gets done is done by volunteers, but how, how big is the actual paid staff at the organization? It is big um, because we have so many hands on different projects. So yeah. we have this facility, we have a facility in Terrytown, we have um, Petco's and PetSmarts that have our cats all over the community, including up in Williamson County. And we have a the American Pets Alive arm. So mm-hmm. we have about... I would say it's about 190 staff people and that's including part-time and full-time. And, um, then we have, uh, each program has a number of volunteers that is helping to offset that load. Um, like our, our orphan kitten nursery has about 20 staff people, most of them seasonal or part-time. And then we have 138 volunteers. So it's, there's always this sort of, um, stacking effect between what people can offer if it's, uh, three hours a week from a volunteer and then maybe 15 hours a week by a staff person. We're Mm. just trying to cobble it together. Okay. Um, I want to ask you just a few questions about Austin specifically, uh, since this, this show generally is specific to this town. How long have you now lived in, in town altogether? I moved here in 1998. 98. Okay. Um, I'm sure you, like many people who have been here for 20 plus years have seen this totally transform itself. Uh, what are the big differences you notice now versus when you first got here or the first few years when you first lived here? Um, everything. (laughs) I mean, it's really changed a lot. It's, uh, it's funny. We moved down to the South Congress area because we, we were like, Oh, this is so up and coming and it's cool. (laughs) And now it's just like totally blown past us. Um, and, uh, and now there's areas around Austin that are doing that same sort of upward climb, um, for rent and, um, boutique style stores and restaurants. And, um, and that's great. That's good for the economy in Austin, but it is also a little bit unsettling because, you know, kind of makes you wonder if you still fit in. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Are you worried with the change that kind of the zeitgeist that has brought your organization to prominence and, and success will change, or are you not necessarily seeing indicators of that at this point? Um, say that again. Sorry. Just with all the changes that are happening, I think Austin is still, I believe the fastest growing major city in America. Mm -hmm. Are you concerned that 
you know, the spirit of the city will change and it will affect the general success of Austin Pets Alive generally? Um, I worry about that a lot. And we've had a lot of um, uh, leadership change at the city of Austin's animal services and in, in the city of Austin itself. And we recently we've been working very hard to try to solidify something that makes it sustainable so that it's not up to the, to the discretion of somebody coming in, whether it's you know, next year or 50 yep. years from now that no kill is important to this town and this is how we do it. And that's just been missing. Um, like I said, it, the, 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 how we do it part is old and out of date and is really built on the system of killing. And we need to get rid of all of that and make sure we've written down really well how we do this yep. and that it's enforced by the director of the animal services, the city manager, and then the council. Yeah. And so that's the thing that we're trying to work on now is how do we really create the sustainability that is not people dependent yep. right now I'm here. We've got other people here that are going to protect this till they die, yep. but you know, I'm not going to live forever. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, how about, you know, just personally living here for so long, are, are there any, you know, local hidden gems that, you know, you, uh, generally think that Austin, as a, as a city just does not know about that you recommend to, to friends, either restaurants or bars or places to visit or go do in town that are not, not super well known. Yeah, we, we do. Um, we, uh, mostly restaurants yeah. and, um, especially maybe 10 years ago, we were really following like the dive bars, the old dive bars sure. in town. And I don't know, they, they probably are getting more play, but maybe not because some of them are closing down, but they're really kind of cool pieces of history in Austin because you can see on the walls what's happened over the last hundred years here. Yeah. And it's really cool. It's yeah. um so there's uh the Jenny's Little Longhorn, I think it's changed names, but it that one is it, the probably the best known of all of them. Yeah. But there's so many like Deep Eddie Saloon mm -hmm. and um even uh let's see, I guess some of these are closed now that I'm thinking about it. Don's Depot sure. is still there. Love that place. And so I, I've always thought if I wasn't doing this, maybe I could make a lot of money doing a dive bar tour of Austin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, how you know outside of the organization and you know, given how much the city has changed, what what does keep you here? Is it uh, you know, what what about the city is still appealing to you? I love Austin. Yeah. I really do. And I think that Austinites are really um, good people. Yeah. I think that's a big part of it is that um, I've, I'm a military brat. I've lived all over the yeah. world and it just feels really good here. People yeah. are nice to each other typically and um, and caring and supportive. And also, there's always something new that you can do, um, not necessarily the new growth, but you Austin is full of little hidden gems. Like yeah. you're talking about some things that you never even know about. Yeah. You can be here for 20 years and never know about it. And then I think the, um, the entrepreneurial spirit of Austin also keeps me here is we, we know that we have a blank slate as far as research and industry standards and, yeah. and Austin's sort of ripe for trying to figure it out. How mm -hmm. do we figure out what's the actual blueprint for a no kill city? Yeah. And so that's pretty exciting. Yeah. Yeah. I think I know, might know the answer to this question, uh, before I ask it to you, but <laughs> what, what would you say, or what do you regard as your life's biggest accomplishment to this point? Definitely this. Yeah. Yeah. I've, um, I think that, uh, being able to, to be part of something like this has been really amazing. Yeah. I would imagine when you decided to do this, this was not the, you know, 
financially most lucrative move you could have made. What, if you can remember what that kind of decision point was like <laughs> for you, what what led you in the direction of you know taking a chance and, and trying to start something totally new? Um, I I had already done it with Emancipet, so I felt oh. like I could figure out a way to make a living and still do this as a volunteer mm. and try to grow it from the ground up. Yeah. So. Um, that wasn't so hard. It wasn't as risky as just quitting your job and becoming homeless. You know, I I actually just worked 80 hours a week and that's how I did it. (laughs) Um, And, uh, over time, I think I just believed it would happen. So I was able to stay on course Mm -hmm. and I had a backup of regular day job if I needed to go to it. So that was good. Do you regard it as a calling? Like, was this something that was deep within you for many years before you actually (laughs) went for it? Or how do you kind of, uh, tell yourself the, your own story about how you made this happen. I don't know the answer to that. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's a calling for sure. It's something that I've always been. Um, I think that the term that people use for kids like this is sensitive to yeah. animals. Yeah. <laughs> and so that was me. Um, and I, you know, everything just broke my heart or breaks my heart still. I can't even watch movies about animals or, or read anything about animals because of that. But, um, so I think that that sort of pushed me towards trying to make it better. Yeah. Like you see all these bad things happening, then what can you do to actually, what can me as a single person do to make it better? Yeah. And, and the answer to this question may be similar to the one you just gave, but what advice would you give a younger you? You know, if, if you were talking to the 20 year old version of yourself, what, what advice would, would you give to yourself? I would say make every year count. Mm. You know, if you're, if, um, that it just goes fast, it goes really fast. And I find myself, I'm, I'm almost 50 and I find myself thinking, okay, what am I going to do for the next 10 years? And, um, you you only have so many 10 year yeah. revolutions before it's done. Yeah. <laughs> And d- does this still feel like that is the next 10 years for yeah, you? It does. Yeah. It does. It's a different type, but it's really, um, like I said, focusing on, on how do we, how do we make this sustainable and how do we make it replicable? This is a, a question I, I try to ask everybody I have long, com- long conversations with. Um, who do you regard in your own life as the wisest person and, <laughs> and why? Um, I think probably my dad. He's um, incredibly intelligent and um, also sensitive, but he's he's a, a critical thinker. Mm. And I think that's the piece that really has helped me through my life. I remember actually, it's funny because I, I remember asking him before I took on this executive director job what I should do because the city was hiring a chief animal, um, a veterinarian. Mm. And so I was like, how do I make the biggest difference? Do I make it as somebody on the inside with a powerful job at the city shelter or do I do it from the outside? And he's career military, went to the Air right. Force Academy, two-star general. Wow. And he said, you cannot make change from the inside. Yeah. And I was like, okay, that's my answer. <laughs> I didn't even question it. It's like, okay, he knows. Sounds like good advice in <laughs> retrospect. <laughs> yes. Um, it, the answer may be the same here, but... Who, uh, if you can remember, if you did have a, a, a hero when you were young, who, who was your, your childhood hero and, and why? That is also a hard question. Um, the thing that comes to mind first, which is probably uh, common, is Joan of Arc mm, yeah. <laughs> because of just her dying for her principles. You know, yeah. I think that there's something really romantic. And um, when you're especially when you're young, just 
you know, knowing that somebody actually burned to death because of what they believed in. Yeah. That's pretty inspiring. Yeah. Um, maybe the, a couple more questions and then we'll wrap this up. Um, what is a belief or a habit, um, that you have adopted in your life that has changed your life for the, for the better and, and why? Um, I, I think the, the, there's many, but Mm. one of the ones, one of the things that I made a conscious decision to change was, um, engaging in conversation about things that I don't know yeah, and kind of the gossip angle of, um, of life. And it just doesn't do anybody any good. There's no positive that comes from that. And it wastes a lot of time. (laughs) And, um, I've, I am a much happier person now that I just won't engage in that. Just bypassing gossip. Yeah. Just like, well, yeah, I don't engage in it. I like that. Um, last question. I know you've done a bunch of interviews, I'm sure over the years, uh, related to your work here at the organization. What is a question that you wish someone had asked you about your work here, about the, what happens at Austin Pets Alive that you wish you would have asked so that you could answer and what would your answer be? Hmm, that's a really good question. The, I guess the question I would ask is, um, hmm. And it could be something just like a, a common misperception of the work that gets done here or what the organization is or its goals, but something that you always wanted to address or to correct the record or to clarify or to give the public just general insight into, into what's going on here. Probably the biggest question would be how, how is this different than a regular shelter? Yeah. And, um, I think that we don't, we we try to do a good job at that, but I still don't think we're quite getting through right. that it looks the same as any other shelter yeah. that you walk. Of course, this one's very old, but in general, people really don't understand yeah. the amount of work that is going into the animals and the care and the, um, the, the potential outcomes for them. That is just the work's pretty it well it's completely unusual which is why cities are not no kill and it's also um pretty advanced and so i think that people view animal shelters as being uh not necessarily that innovative or that smart or that um cutting edge and we really have so much going on here. I could spend a whole day walking yeah. around the shelter and telling you all the things that we're, we have our hands in that are, are really going to change the country. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Um, I really appreciate your time and I wish you totally the best with what you're Thank doing. You. Here. I think it's an amazing organization. So congratulations. Thank and you. I wish you the best. Thanks so much. Thank I you. appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to the ATX podcast. For more information, follow the show on social media. Its handle is The ATX Podcast and on the show's website, theatxpodcast.com. Mm-hmm.